Well, you can open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 10. And keep your finger there, and then you can also turn to 1 Thessalonians. Uh, We'll start there and kind of jump back to Matthew 10. But first of all, as we start, (laughs) I just have to make a confession, because um, honestly, I really don't like sports movies. (laughs) I like a lot of movies, and... But sports movies, I just generally don't really care for. And that might strike you odd, as I really enjoy sports. But I find sports movies uh, sort of cliché. You know what I mean? The way there's an underdog, and the underdog, they have a big failing. And then they have this rousing speech, and then the underdog wins at the last second. (laughs) But even though I don't like sports movies necessarily, uh, I think there's one thing that we all do like. There's one thing that I think (laughs) we all can get passionate about, and that is that motivational speech. (laughs) It's in all the sports movies, and it's in other movies too, but... That one moment where the coach, he comes in and his team is down, they're depressed, they're discouraged. It feels as though they're on the brink of failure. And the coach comes in and he gives them this rousing, motivational speech and they feel like they can go out and just do anything. And then they do. We like those moments. I like those moments. When I hear those, I feel like I can go out and run a marathon. And I can't run right now because I'm still rehabbing my ACL. But I feel like I can. I like those motivational moments. I like those times where I can feel inspired. And if you think about it that way, 1 Thessalonians is really Paul's motivational speech to the Thessalonian believers. I've taught on this before in a couple different venues, but um, the Thessalonican church endured a lot of adversity uh, as Paul was witnessing to them there, as he was establishing that church. There was a great amount of affliction and adversity. You can actually read that in Acts chapter 17. Um, you can read about all those events there. But uh, as Paul and his team were, were evangelizing the church there, uh, they stirred up a mob. The revival sort of stirred up this, this, in the King James it says, these lewd fellows of the baser sort. Just these rabble-rousers. They're just rioters. And it stirs them up and it actually forces them out of the city. So Paul and Silas and Timothy, they ended up leaving. They, they ended up leaving prematurely. They didn't want to leave. But they had to leave and so they flee and... Um, Paul and Silas and all of them, they leave and they avoid this affliction. But that, the persecution uh, persisted. It, it continued in this church for the Thessalonians. And it leads Paul to send Timothy back. So Paul and, and Silas and his team, they're at Athens. And they ended up sending Timothy back. Look at 1 Thessalonians 3 in verse 1. It says that Paul is writing here. He says, Wherefore, when we could no longer forbear, when we could no longer bear it, we thought it good to be left at Athens alone. And send Timotheus our brother and minister of God and our fellow laborer in the gospel of Christ to establish you and to comfort you concerning your faith. So Paul sends Timothy back. He is concerned about these new believers. He's concerned about these new converts. And so he sends Timothy back with a motivating, quote-unquote, message to give to these new Christians. He's looking to build them up in their faith. They're going in their faith. They're, they're going through a trying time. They're discouraged. They're most likely depressed. They're afflicted. They have just believed in this new gospel, as it's called all throughout Acts, the way of Christ. And now they're suffering. They're being persecuted for their faith. But look at how Paul chooses to build them up. I love what he says. Look at verse 3. 
of 1 Thessalonians 3, verse 3, that no man should be moved by these afflictions. For you yourselves know that we are appointed thereunto. For verily, when we were with you, we told you before that we should suffer tribulation, even as it came to pass, and ye know. For this cause, when I could no longer forbear, I sent to know your faith, lest by some means the tempter have tempted you, and our labor be in vain. (laughs) Did you notice what he did there? (laughs) It doesn't wish to give them some inspiring message about how they can escape the suffering, about how they can move past it, how they can uh, forge through it. He basically says, we told you this was going to happen. You were appointed to suffer. That's what he says. You were appointed thereunto. You were destined to suffer affliction. This shouldn't be, he's basically saying, this shouldn't be a surprise to you. We warned you, you shouldn't be surprised. You shouldn't be moved by this affliction. We told you in advance that this was going to happen, and it did. So don't be moved, don't be shaken. (laughs) How, I think that's a very strange way to go about encouraging new Christians. (laughs) And I I think if Paul was looking to sort of sell Christianity, he wasn't selling it very well. (laughs) I don't think he was, uh, uh, this wasn't the best way to, you know, get more uh, tithe, right? (laughs) He wasn't selling the gospel in this moment, I don't think. At least in human terms. (laughs) Basically he's saying, follow Jesus, you're going to suffer, it's the best. Now come, follow me. (laughs) This is very different, I think, than most of the sermons that we hear nowadays, wouldn't you say? A lot of the sermons that we hear from that one guy out in Texas... (laughs) The sermons that everything is happy, everything is go lucky, and you just have to keep winning for Jesus and all these sorts of things. These motivational uh, life lessons. (laughs) This is different. You're appointed to suffer. But actually I think Paul, this isn't something that he came up with. This isn't some uh, strictly uh, a message that Paul came up with on his own. I think Paul is just reiterating what Jesus taught to his own apostles. And that's where we come to Matthew chapter 10. Because this is, I like to call this the worst and best pregame speech ever delivered. <laughs> that's what Matthew 10 is. It's literally Jesus' pre-game speech to his apostles as they're about to go out and start preaching to uh, the Jews. And I think Paul in 1 Thessalonians was just reinforcing what Jesus is teaching here. So uh, we're in Matthew 10 and Jesus was never really shy about what following him meant. He never beat around the bush. He never gave false promises that following me means wealth and prosperity. He never, he never said that. He never, uh, he never tried to give you a false sense of what following him entailed. Persecution for him was inevitable. It was inescapable. And so Matthew 10, Jesus here is giving them their commission. He's giving them their mission to preach and teach the gospel to the Jewish nation and engage in this mission. He's given them a list of things to do, and, and it's essentially his pregame speech to his chosen twelve, his guys. The guys that he specifically called by name. And as, as, I, as I said, it's, if you think about it in, a, in human terms, it's probably the worst pregame speech that you could ever deliver. Look at verse 1 of Matthew 10, and, and Jesus 
And it says, And when he had called unto him his twelve disciples, he gave them power against unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal all manner of sickness and all manner of disease. Look at verse 5. These twelve Jesus sent forth and commanded them, saying, Go not into the way of the Gentiles, and into any city of the Samaritans enter ye not, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And as ye go, preach, saying, The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Heal the sick, cleanse the lepers, raise the dead, cast out devils. Freely ye have received and freely give. So right now it sounds good, right? He's giving them power. He's giving them ability. They're going to do amazing miracles in the land of Israel. And they're going to see converts. But look at verse 16. This is where it really gets interesting. Jesus says, Behold, I send you forth. As sheep, as sheep in the midst of wolves, be ye therefore wise as serpents and harmless as doves. But beware of men, for they will deliver you up to the councils, and they will scourge you in their synagogues, and ye shall be brought before governors and kings for my sake, for a testimony against them and the Gentiles. And the, look at verse 21. And the brother shall deliver up the brother to death. And the father, the child, and the children shall rise up against their parents and cause them to be put to death. And ye shall be hated of all men for my name's sake. But he that endureth to the end shall be saved. But when they persecute you in this city, flee ye into another. For verily I say unto you, ye shall not have gone over the city of Israel to the Son of Man be come. So if you think about it, I think Paul and, and Jesus are really trying to say the same thing. The same thing is that suffering is coming. And suffering is coming if you believe in me, if you follow me, if you are my disciple, you will endure affliction. He's basically saying, guess what, you're going to be scourged, you're going to be judged, you're going to be tried unfairly, you're going to be betrayed by your own family... You're going to be rejected by cities and ridiculed by the masses. You're going to be hated. But hey, let's go preach. Doesn't it make you want to preach? You're going to be hated. You're going to be scourged and beaten. What kind of message is that? I read these verses and I have to ask myself humanly and say, what kind of motivation is this? What, what would make me want to engage in this mission if, if this is all I had? I don't think I would. They didn't have the type of revelation that you have. You have the full Bible in front of you. These guys are experiencing the New Testament right before their eyes. How would this be encouraging? Just like when Paul said to the Thessalonians, you were appointed and destined to suffer. Well, we have to keep reading. Because Jesus, in the next couple of verses, he gives them two very simple promises, I think, that are actually extremely encouraging, extremely uplifting. And actually, they can speak right to you if you are in the midst of a season of suffering yourself. Two simple promises. Look at verse 26. Jesus continues and he says, Fear them not, therefore, for there is nothing covered that shall not be revealed, and hid that shall not be known. What I tell you in darkness, that ye speak in light, and what ye hear in the ear, that preach ye upon the housetops. And fear not them which kill the body, but are not able to kill the soul, but rather fear him which is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. 
Are not two sparrows sold for a farthing? And one of them shall not fall to the, on the ground without your father? But the very hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear ye not, therefore. Ye are of more value than many sparrows. So the first promise he gives here, I think, is, is simply this. I am yours. He's basically saying, guess what? You can go out and preach this insane message. You can go out and be hated because I, Jesus Christ, the Lord, am yours. I'm yours. It's a simple promise, but he, he makes it to them, I think, because look at what he does. Look at what, it, do you notice what was mentioned three times there in those verses? Verse 26, fear them not, therefore. Verse 28, and fear not them which kill the body. In verse 31, fear ye not, therefore. You don't be afraid. You don't have to fear. You don't have to have trepidation. You're not going about this on your own. You're not going about this in your own power. I am yours. You don't have to fear. Because God was going to be with them. He himself would be with them through his spirit. Later he gives them the promise that a comforter would come. He was going to be with them in his Holy Spirit. But I also like what he says earlier. We skipped these verses for an important reason because I wanted to go back to them now. But look at verse 19 because they didn't have to fear. They weren't going to try and come up with their own words. Look at verse 19. He says, but when they deliver you up, take no thought... How or what ye shall speak? For it shall be given you in that same hour what ye shall speak. For it is not ye that speak, but the Spirit of your Father which speaketh in you. It wasn't going to be their words. It wasn't going to be their message. It wasn't going to be their motivational, inspirational speech. It was going to be the Spirit's words. It was going to be God's words in them and through them. They were just going to be vessels. They were going to be sort of like megaphones that God was going to speak through. The apostles could be bold in that. They could be courageous in that because their message wasn't their own. And yes, their message was going to be viewed as insane. It was going to be viewed as hate speech in some places. It was going to be an absurd message, a foolish message. And Paul even says that in 1 Corinthians. Remember where he says that to some, the cross is foolishness. <laughs> The folly of the cross and this otherworldly message. If you think about it, the, the otherworldly message is the only type of a way we can explain this anyways. I, I don't think us humans would come up with the idea that a God came down to rescue the very people that rebelled against him. We wouldn't come up with that. We would come up with karma that we have to make it up to God in hopes that he loves us. That's the way humans view religion. But the otherworldly message of the gospel is that God comes down for the sinners, for the very people that rebelled against Him in the garden. And that's why He has to give them that message. Because they wouldn't come up with that. They wouldn't come up with that type of grace, that type of uh, message to the world. It would be a foolish message. And actually, that's the very thing they're accused of in Acts 17, remember? They're being forced out. and They accuse these apostles of having a message, and it says in Acts 17, 6, that turns the world upside down. It's an upside down message that, that God comes down. We don't have to go up to Him. He comes down for you. 
And anyone resolved to this, me- this message then shouldn't be afraid. They shouldn't be dis- distressed when persecution comes. It should be actually expected. That's what Jesus is telling them. You don't have to be afraid. Just be ready. You don't have to fear. Just be watching. Because, yes, it's going to come. You're preaching a message that goes against all of the narratives, all of the philosophies, all of the ideas and ideologies of the world. You're preaching a message that is against all of that. And if you follow me, if you pledge allegiance to me, you're naturally going to be at odds with the world. You just have to be ready for it. One writer says it this way, that with his or her commitment to follow Christ faithfully, the Christian sets the course of his life directly opposite to the course of the world system. Therefore, confrontation and conflict become inevitable. If you uh, align yourself with Jesus Christ, you're naturally going to be at odds with what the world says. With what the world says about anything. Any topic can fill that bucket. You're going to be at odds with what they say. Because they have in their minds selfishness and pride. And where if you are a Christian, you should have in your mind the love and the mercy of Christ in your minds. Don't be afraid. Don't be ashamed. Don't be astonished by this message, by this affliction that becomes, uh, comes because of it. But hold fast to me because I'm holding fast to you. I am yours, Jesus is saying. Fear not. I am yours. And actually, Paul actually says something similar to his young protege in 2 Timothy. Listen to what he says in 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 8. He's encouraging his young uh, protege and he says, Be not there, th- thou therefore ashamed of the testimony of our Lord. Nor of me his prisoner, but be thou a partaker of the afflictions of the gospel according to the power of God. Be a partaker of the afflictions. Have part in suffering. Apparently, I think these new Thessalonian believers, if you jump back, you don't have to turn there, but if you think back to 1 Thessalonians, these Christians, um, they were surprised By this unrelenting sort of storm of persecution. But Paul was encouraging them with a special way that they didn't have to be afraid. This was part of what God wanted in their lives. And Paul clearly suggests that this persecution naturally accompanies the followers of Jesus. If you go back to 2 Timothy, he encourages him again. In chapter 3 verse 12 he says, Yea, and all that will live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. It's a part of it. You're going against what the world says and you're preaching an otherworldly message. And so suffering then isn't a matter of if, but when. But God gives the promise that I am yours. So you don't have to be afraid. But he also gives a second promise. If you're back in Matthew 10, we can read those verses again. I think you'll see another promise because he says, you are mine. And this is a really important promise. Look at verse 26. I'm going to read them again. Fear them not therefore. For there is nothing covered that shall not be revealed. And hid that shall not be known. What I tell you in darkness that speak ye in light. And what ye hear in the ear that preach ye upon the housetops. And fear not them which kill the body but are not able to kill the soul. But rather fear him 
which is able to both destroy, excuse me, to destroy both soul and body in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a farthing, and one of them shall not fall on the ground without your father? But the very hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear ye not, therefore, ye are of more value than many sparrows. See, now here, this is where it gets even greater. Because not only is he yours, but you are his. And Jesus encourages them by reminding them of the, the Father's absolute sovereignty over even the minuscule things of life. He's intimately aware of his children. God is intimately aware of whatever is going on in your life. Every part of it is seen. Every part of it is known by him. And he knows, yes, how many hairs you've lost yesterday and how many you're going to lose today and how many even you're going to lose tomorrow. Now, it's, it's funny. We don't often think of Jesus having a sense of humor. But that's sort of a, a tongue-in-cheek sense of humor to say that he's absolutely sovereign over everything. Yes, even the hairs of your head. And it's a it's somewhat silly illustration that, that God is numbering your head and he's making little tick marks when you lose some. <laughs> but it's for the point of saying that the same God who has power over death, he could destroy both soul and body in hell. He has power over death. It's the same God who's watching over you. Who's looking at you. Who's seeing and knowing and caring for you. It's the same God. The world would say they are ruled by fate. You know, they always talk about fate is, is what's making them do this or that. Or choose this person or that person. Your world is not ruled or carried or sustained by anything relating to fate. It's ruled by a God. As one pastor says, and I love this, he says, It's ruled by a God who's involved with bald heads and dead sparrows in the internal truths of the Christian life. And what that means is, he's the sovereign ruler over the grains of the sand that line our Florida coast. But he's also the God of all the galaxies that we haven't even discovered yet. He's the God of both. He's not just one and the other. He's both. <laughs> he rules over all the things we haven't seen and we haven't even known existed. And yet he knows how many hairs you lost yesterday. Because you are his. You are mine. Nothing is, is too small for him. Nothing is too big for him. He's the God of both. And so our, our sufferings then, our afflictions then ought to make us remember that He is ours and we are His. I like to call them God's traumatic teachers because they teach for us how God uses us through our affliction. And how God uses them to bring our attention back to Him and back to His glory. And nowhere else but in the gospel... Are we told to rejoice in this suffering? Paul says, you're appointed to suffer. Jesus is saying, this is going to happen. Jesus' own brother, James, listen to what he says in James 1, verse 2. My brethren, counted all joy when you fall into diverse temptations, knowing this, that the trying of your faith worketh patience. But let patience have her perfect work, that ye may be perfect and entire, wanting nothing. Counted joy. When you fall into these various temptations and trials. <laughs> Nowhere else in the world would you have that type of message. 
That's why the Spirit had to speak through the apostles. They couldn't go out and say, rejoice in suffering on their own. That is a message that comes from God. That's a message that comes from, uh, as in Acts 17, the upside down message of the gospel. To rejoice into suffering. And as Paul later says, to uh, take pleasure in his infirmities. Let's read the, I'm going to read those verses just because they're amazing. I wrote them down. 2 Corinthians 12, 9 and 10. We just heard Hugh Black preach on them. But he said, uh, um, this is Paul. And he says, And he said unto me, My grace is sufficient for thee, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, will I rather glory in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Therefore, I take pleasure in my infirmities, in reproaches, in necessities, in persecutions, in distresses for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Nobody else in the world except the people who have aligned themselves by Christ and who are therefore also empowered by Christ would say, I pleasure in my infirmities. Everyone else is trying to get you to uh, move past your infirmities, to get out of them, to uh, have strength through them or to say that they're not really that big of a deal and that you can overcome them. Jesus doesn't promise any of those things. You know what Jesus promises? He doesn't promise to pull you out of it. He doesn't promise to uh, do some miracle and that you won't have any more suffering. He promises to meet you in it. And that's more powerful than anything. He's not a God that's afraid of messes. He's not afraid of storms. He's not afraid of the mayhem that we have caused. He says, I am God and I'm going to meet you in the middle of it. Like in Isaiah 43 when he says, Though you walk through all these things and you go through the fire and the flood and the storm, I am your Savior and I am there. The remarkable and upside down, we could say, news of the gospel is that your testimony to the world, your witness... Isn't the fact that you have everything put together. It's not the fact that you have all your I's dotted and T's crossed. And all your things put in your calendar and where they should be. Your witness to the world is the fact that you are weak. You are broken. But that God meets you in that weakness. And he uses you in your brokenness. Your greatest witness to the world is your confession of that. Because that's where Jesus is. Suffering and weakness is precisely where Christ wants to find us. Because there we have nowhere else to turn but to Him. We have nowhere else to go but to Jesus. One writer says it this way, that binding up wounds is Christ's office. (laughs) I love that. That Jesus' office, His ministry is binding up wounds. (laughs) He's a physician, the great physician. And it's often often wounds that we incur on ourselves. But we can rejoice because we can know that we aren't the center of this whole thing. We're not the point. We're not the message Jesus is. And our suffering is by divine order and by divine construction. Because He wants to show Himself that He has endured for us first. And that He is faithful when we are not. And that's where we can glory. One writer says it this way, and I love this. Hold fast to Christ in the dark, and surely ye shall see the salvation of God. 
When you don't know what's going on and you can't even see the little pinprick of light at the end of the tunnel, hold fast to Christ. And you know why you can? Because He is yours and you are His. Because He has promised to meet you in the mess and He is the God of both the galaxies and your lost hairs. And that's why you can hold fast to Him. The writer of Hebrews says in Hebrews 3.6, But Christ, as a son over His own house, whose house we are, if we hold fast the confidence and the rejoicing of the hope, firm unto the end. And also 4 verse 14 says, Seeing then that we have a great high priest that is passed into the heavens, Jesus the Son of God, let us hold fast our profession. Hebrews 10.23 Let us hold fast the profession of our faith without wavering, for He is faithful that promised. You know why you can hold fast to Christ? You can hold fast to Christ because Jesus is holding fast to you. You can hold fast to Christ amidst intense suffering and persecution precisely because He is holding fast to you. And His grip, guess what, will never cease, it will never weaken, it will never diminish, it will never let you go. It's not like you're holding on to him and that's what's keeping you going. He's already got you. You're just hugging him. I think of like a little kid. You know, a father picks up his daughter and he holds them really closely and and they wrap their arms around your neck, right? So the daughter is holding on to the father, but who's really doing the holding? The dad. That's how Jesus has you. He's holding you in his arms and you're just holding him back. And you're watching how faithful he is. He will never abandon his grip of you. Whether you go through difficult seasons or amazing seasons. God has promised to meet you where you are. And yes, you will be hated. Yes, you might suffer persecution. It's looking more likely like we will in this generation. The world is growing uh, greater and greater. Uh, their, uh, their animosity towards the Christians is growing. But Jesus promises that I will never let you go. He says in John 10, 28, And I give unto them eternal life, and they shall never perish, neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand. They can't take anything away from you that God has already given. And God is saying, go out anyways. Preach this otherworldly message anyways. Preach this, uh, uh, this, this message of God coming down anyways. Because guess what? I am yours and you are mine. And I'm never going to let you go. I'm never going to uh, let, you, uh, let you die without me having some part in it. <laughs> he is the ruler over both death and life. Far off galaxies and grains of sand. This God is with you. This God is for you. Always and forever, this God is for you. So, actually, that's the best pregame speech. <laughs> that is very motivating. That God is yours and you are God's. You are His. Let's pray.